Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this third series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, we talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. We're doing something a little different this week, uh, providing a sampler on our uh, Voices from the Vernacular Music Center Foodways theme. And we thought, because we're talking about food this week, we would actually come to you from uh, the patio at a local uh, diner here in Lubbock, Texas. You can hear this, the street noise in the background. We're out of doors. Hopefully, we've blocked the wind, so we're not going to have a, a, a gale blowing through our uh, um, episode. But we thought it would be kind of a nice uh, little bit of verity uh, that we could add. So we have been doing, um, when we record each of our uh, podcasts, each episode, uh, especially when we have guests, we have been also recording short vignettes where we ask those guests to share with us a recipe or a food memory, something that has to do with vernacular uh, cuisine. And uh, we've been swirling these away for a special day, which is today. And uh, we're going to add a couple um, here in just a second. Um, and then the rest that you will hear will be some familiar voices. If you are a listener of the podcast, you will recognize our guests from, uh, from uh, previous episodes. Yeah, and I, I have to say that Roger and I are both especially glad, we're especially chuffed, as our Irish friends would say, to be able to include amongst all these other distinguished guests and distinguished food memories, our very own podcast staff, our post-production engineer, Gavin Stockard, and our promotions slash marketing slash metadata slash administrative coordinator slash VMC den mother, Heather Belts. And we're really delighted to have both of the people who really make what we call the back end of the podcast happen. We're the two blokes talking in the front end, but Gavin and Heather are the people who really make the magic happen. So guys, let Roger and me both say welcome to both of you. Yes, it's great to have you. So, Gavin, um, do you uh, have a memory or an anecdote or a recipe or something food-oriented that you'd like to share with our audience? Oh, first thing I'm going to say is it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting editing my own voice later. Uh, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> um, well, I have edited so many episodes and come to the analysis of what you guys deemed the vernacular and when i think i've listened to so many of these foodways episodes and they talk about their favorite food but i don't really see just eating a food or something in my opinion as a vernacular instead i see my like idea of vernacular being like 
taught how to cook and passed on so many different skills from my grandmother and my great aunt. And so whenever I was young, I uh, would always be very curious in the kitchen. And I grew up in a grew up in a family that was like all the males did not eat or like did not like cook. They always expected dinner to be on the like you know ready whenever they got home after their shifts and stuff. And uh, so as soon as I peaked interest, even a little bit of interest at a young age of cooking and what they're doing, uh, that is when my uh, family got very you know smirk in their you know face and they're like ha all right we're gonna teach you real quick so my vernacular was baking i love baking so learning craft of baking um learning the science of baking and how very fine-tuned you had to make the water just the right temperature I had to you know beat it and my favorite thing of baking was probably like cookies and bread uh so it went from being a gluttonous little kid looking at uh my you know aunt and grandma begging for food like a puppy looking at you for scraps to getting this very like uh peak interest of like learning the craft and i took that interest and it's become a hobby of mine and i even um whenever i have like gatherings and stuff i go ahead and make food for everybody and it's become something that's very important to me well that's you you do truly understand the vernacular i have to say and you've also made me very hungry <laughs> <laughs> so, Heather, as our all-around podcasting back-end promotions metadata and VMC administrative coordinator ninja, as you know, this is for the podcast special ongoing feature called In the Kitchen, where we talk about vernacular food ways and how food intersects with other kinds of culture and favorite memories and and really core kinds of psychological and emotional cultural experiences we've had. So we know you come from a particular part of the world. Do you have a favorite recipe or an anecdote or a memory involving food that you would like to share? Yeah, and it's actually, um, it is definitely, uh, I'll talk about the food, but it's more of where I grew up. So I'm from a very uh, white, family. Uh, and we, you know, uh, my family came over early and we lived in the Appalachian area and then they all came to Texas. Um, and I actually did not grow up with a lot of, uh, cooked food. We, there was a lot of kind of pre-planned so we just kind of threw in the oven and they went because of situations. And, um, so learning to cook is a, a newer thing that I'm working on right now, but something that I always look forward to every time um i travel for specifically like the christmas holidays we have the normal thanksgiving meal we have the normal well i'll say normal as in american turkey green bean casserole all that kind of stuff that's all for thanksgiving and christmas but what i look forward to the most which is something i learned from my mom who grew up in corpus christi and san antonio back and forth um in texas is the christmas eve meal which always includes um, tamales, salsa, uh, guacamole, fajitas. Like we go all out. Um, and that's the meal that I care about the most. I mean, I've, uh, through grad school and meeting <laughs> Dr. Smith and Dr. Lennis, um, tradition, certain traditions I've kind of like, ah, you know, it's whatever. I, I won't be, you know, so uh, picky about it like I was when I was younger. But that one, the Christmas Eve meal, um, which is, 
it comes from more of the Mexican Tex-Mex traditions, um, especially with um, when we have the meal and what we have for the meal, especially um, sometimes we will cook our own, we won't make them, it's a very laborious process, but typically we try and find um, the wonderful grandmas who who make all of the tamales like throughout all of November and December and we try and like support the local community and buy from them um and then just kind of reheat it um <laughs> at our house and then kind of enjoy it um and then typically watch Christmas movies and stuff like that but um it's not really uh unique if you live in Texas or like really south Texas central to south Texas uh, the closer to Lubbock we are, it's more New Mexican styles I've I've learned. I, I greatly miss breakfast tacos, which apparently don't really go much further than Central Texas. It's more like breakfast burritos and stuff like that. Um, but those are some of my favorite things to eat um, during the holidays. And I that's the one thing I'm like, I don't care about the turkey. I want this. Yeah. And, and the reality is that foodways, as with lots of other folkways, they help us remember who we are and where we are and with whom we are. And that's one of the core values of the podcast, isn't it? Who we are, where we are, and with whom we are. So thanks, Heather. Thank y'all for having us on here. So here is the roster of the folks whose voices you'll be hearing. We'll start with Ron Milam. Roger Landis. Aileen Delan. Nicholas Jardin. Patrick Warfield. Rob Peasley and Rob Weiner. Rich Rimsberg. Steve Waxman. Cassandra Belasso Bardon. And Genevieve Durham de Cesaro. I will say this, that I, I did spend my year in Vietnam almost 50 years ago now, and I said that I probably would never, and I ate the, the, the food of the local people, and I said, man, I'll never have to eat that stuff again. Um, and here I am, you know, 50 years later, and I love everything about Vietnamese food. Um, and so my Vietnamese students, uh, of course, cook sometimes cook it for me. Uh, but we try to we try to eat as often as we can at Asian restaurants, and specifically Vietnamese restaurants. But I'm so fortunate to go to Vietnam so many times. I've been there, like I say, 16 times now since the war. And I can't get enough of the 30 days that I spend in Vietnam, in Vietnam because Vietnamese cook, food cooked in Vietnam is a lot different than the local restaurants anywhere else that you go. So I am a big fan of Vietnamese food. Now, having said that, I got so tired of eating rice in Vietnam that my Vietnamese students, my Vietnamese friends make fun of me because I don't want my Vietnamese food food with rice. I would rather eat it with rice noodles or egg noodles or something else. And they laugh at me because why don't you eat the rice? They always accuse me of, I eat my, I have my plate full and they accuse me of spreading the rice around the edge of the plate. So it looks like I've eaten it. And yet 
I haven't. And they always say, well, if you put it all back together in the middle, it's the same amount as we started with. But I have a question for you, Roger, and it specifically has to do with how one might fuel a dissertation. Well, in my case, besides, you know, just normal food that um, I would eat, you know, even if I weren't, weren't in the process of dissertating, um, I found that in, in long writing sessions, because I had some long writing sessions, as you well know, um, that if I needed a, you know, something to munch on to keep pouring fuel on the fire rather than stopping for a big meal and then getting sleepy. Um, I found um, that a mix made of cocktail peanuts, one pound, um, 10 ounces of raisins, and I think it's a seven ounce bag of uh, semi-sweet chocolate chips. I recommend the, the Ghirardelli. Um, that that right there, if you mix it up, shake it up so there's no clumps, grab a, a couple of handfuls of that and your favorite, you know, beverage, uh, caffeine, you know, inter interfaces very well with this mix. Um, and then if you want to add a couple of twists to it, you could put in a cup of coconut. And there again, make sure to shake it and break it up so it gets distributed. And I like to put in... Um, a couple of teaspoons of ground cinnamon and uh, it makes for a wonderful salty proteiny chocolatey uh, there's enough uh, high carbs in it that uh, that it'll keep you going but enough protein that it keeps you from spiking and burning out um, it is it really is something you can munch on all day like on a long drive and it, and it'll keep you going so I call it dissertation fuel to climb that trail of the dissertation. Uh, have you got a favorite recipe or anecdote uh, involving food that you'd like to share with us? So uh, we're all vegan in my house. Um, vegetarian up until fairly recently. My kids are still uh, vegetarian. I have three. Well, my husband and I are vegan and uh, we live on three acres and we have a veggie patch where we grow various vegetables and peas and tomatoes and potatoes. Of course, you couldn't be Irish and not grow potatoes. And uh, when we moved or built our house, I guess it was 13 years ago now, it um, was uh, one of those pre-made Scandinavian design off the back of a truck from Sweden that goes up in six pieces and you click it together and then you finish it. But the interior had to be done. So uh, because my husband um, is so keen on cooking and on us eating a very healthy life, uh, he built an outdoor pizza oven before the doors were even on my bathroom. So if you're talking to me about a good recipe, I guess my favorite thing to eat would be uh, getting some flour. We don't grow any wheat on our property because it's too wet, but we get locally milled flour and we use everything else from our garden, including roast potatoes, onions, garlic, herbs. And we create um, outdoor, uh, using our outdoor pizza oven, beautiful vegetarian pizzas um, in maybe 30 seconds once that pizza oven is up to soak. So with that and with some homemade um, either uh, beer or we also make some homemade um, cordial from, um, you know, some of the blossoms in the trees around our property or 
from blackberries in the autumn. We try and make and have at least a feast that has, you know, our own food in it. And I'm very much into that idea of sustainable growing and sustainable practice. Because when you pull that cherry tomato off the vine or you go out and get that blueberry in the morning for your porridge, there's nothing quite like it. Okay, so you've persuaded us. Roger and I will be right over for dinner. And you will be welcome. have a favorite recipe or food experience or food value you'd like to tell us about? Well, uh, since my two brothers are vegetarians, since like maybe four or five years ago, I decided also for me and my, my kids and my wife to, to reduce dramatically the, the amount of meat we eat, we eat each week. So I, I eat meat only tonight on Friday. Uh, and the other times, well, I explore a lot of things. Uh, I, I'm, I make Indian food since uh, maybe uh, five, six years, and I really try to improve my chickpea curry. And my brother just showed me the technique of the Indian splash. So I'm working on it now. <laughs> and uh, it's not, it's not uh, as good as him, but uh, it's good. You know, and my, my daughter, she really don't, doesn't like meat at all. So she, she's really happy about it. And my um, the money I sp I put in food too. It's better because meat is really expensive. What is the Indian splash? It's at the end when you prepare the curry, and uh, before the end, you just you take some oil, onions, uh, um, pepper, hot peppers, and a lot of different spices. For like example, the last last week it was uh, um, uh, mustard seeds and uh, pavo seeds. Um, a, little, a little splash of uh, uh, tomato puree and two um, I don't um, in French we say piment oiseau bird bird piment small red uh, pepper uh -huh. and then you make it really hot and then at the last moment you put that in the curry and it, it, it increases the flavor of all the rest of the curry and of course you put some cilantro on it at the end coriander yes. is life uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, do you have a favorite anecdote or or food or recipe or anything food way food wise that you'd like to share with us? Well, I mean, I'll just say so. We talked both about Sousa and about Washington D.C. as a place, right? And so Sousa loved to promote himself with all sorts of in all sorts of ways. He published lots and lots of articles. One of which is his mother's spaghetti recipe, which is an enormous uh, pot vat of spaghetti. I made it once. Uh, as far as I could tell, the only special thing about it is you don't break the pieces of spaghetti at all. You, very important, he says, to put them in as one piece. I didn't find it good at all. Um, my apologies to Mrs. Souza. Washington, D.C., I'm not a, I'm not a native Washingtonian. I moved there. And one of the things I always do in new cities is like, what's the most local kind of food? And D.C. is this weird place, right? It's got amazing immigrant populations with lots of different things. But the things that Washingtonians seem to identify as local food are, you ready? The jumbo slice, which is a slice of pizza that is basically a half of a pizza. There's otherwise nothing special about it. A thing called the half smoke, which is absolutely delicious. I don't know what it is. It's a, a sausage of some sort. Apparently it's maybe half pork, half beef. I don't know. They often slit it down the middle and grill it that way. So that might be why it's half. It's famous at Ben's Chili Bowl. And you can get that in uh, the Reagan National Airport at this point. A food called the steak and cheese, not the cheese steak, 
this is also not a particularly good piece of food. It's a cheese steak with all the vegetable toppings you would get on a sub, which means it's goopy and the lettuce gets hot and the tomato sort of melts. It's kind of kind of weird, I think. And then the creme de la creme, this is actually good, is something called mumbo sauce. It's hard to explain what this is. I think it's what happens when African-American immigrants and also Asian-American immigrants sort of collide and you create something that's sort of barbecue sauce and sort of duck sauce and you put it on anything fried. So if you're in DC, you'll find it on fried chicken, on French fries, on fried fish, everywhere. And it is spectacular. Yes, Mambo please. Mambo sauce. Mambo sauce. <laughs> I got the opportunity to go to New York City uh, shortly before the pandemic set in uh, for a professional trip. And I spent one day wandering around Manhattan. And one of the things I like to do when I travel is find out where Anthony Bourdain went when he was wherever I am. And so in this case, there was many choices because New York obviously is home, was home for, for Tony. Um, and what I chose was uh, Osteria Morini, which is this little Italian restaurant, uh, I think in the West Village. Um, and uh, it was, I sat at the bar, which is always the best place to sit in a restaurant, uh, particularly a fine dining restaurant, because you can usually sit quickly um, and uh, you can talk to the bartenders and people at the bar. And, I uh, I just had like this blissful two hours working my way through, uh, you know, four courses, sitting at the bar, uh, talking to, you know, New- actual New Yorkers, um, and every every bite was just perfect, and every every sip of the house red was exactly what it should have been, and uh, yeah, it's probably it's probably my favorite solo meal ever. And I, I have to think, Rob Peasley, I have to think that Tony Bourdain would have approved. I think so. Yeah. What about you, Rob Weiner? You got one for us? Well, with me, I'm always going to have to relate it back to music. And I was with my buddies going to see King Crimson. And we were in Dallas and we went to this Panamanian restaurant. And uh, I remember getting fried yucca. And uh, it just being in some of the uh, uh, other dishes, I, I don't remember the names of them, but I just remember that being one of the most memorable meals I've ever had at this Panamanian restaurant um, just before the King Crimson show. So um, hanging out with some, some good buddies, about to go hear some really terrific progressive rock. So, Yeah. Kind of feeds the soul, doesn't it? Yeah, it feeds the soul. I have no recipes. I am food illiterate. I don't really care much about food. Uh, I will offer you two anecdotes. You can decide what you like better. Okay. Uh, I like to have uh, icebreaker questions or just conversation prompts. Like we were talking when we were. Uh, Killing time before getting started today, I asked you about what field trips you went on as a kid. And I always like having questions like that. For a while, I was asking people if they'd ever eaten insects. And, you know, that started as just kind of a clever thing. But I started getting some pretty interesting answers. And I was at a wedding 
And it was during one of the down times of that. And a few of us were sitting around. And I was uh, sitting next to my friend, Mike, who I'd known for quite a while. He owned the camera store in Bloomington. And uh, I said, Mike, have you ever eaten insects? And he thought for a second. He said, yeah, I have. Uh, and he told me a story about when he was a medic in Vietnam. And they would, on their days off, they would go up into the mountains where the mountain yard were living and give them medical treatment and attention. Uh, for which the Moulton Yard were grateful and they just got to know them and, and they ended up inviting Mike and the other medics to uh, uh, meals and, and so forth. And there was some giant beetle that was a delicacy there. And uh, anyway, he told me that story about uh, about eating the beetles with the, the Moulton Yard and his medical duty in Vietnam, which just totally surprised me. You know, a guy that I'd known for quite a while I had a, was sitting on a uh, just a, an experience like that in his life. And so uh, it just, I don't know. It, 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 yeah, anyway, you can draw whatever morals you want from it. That, that's one story. Uh, the other is, yeah, I'm not a food guy. I'm highly indiscriminate about food. Um, when I was in high school, I was uh, at a friend a friend of mine and I were at his girlfriend's house and then they went off to make out in a corner or something. And I was just left in this desolate neighborhood in this desolate house with nothing to do. So I started wandering around and I went down to the basement and in the, there was a utility shelf by the washing machine. And I saw what I thought was, or assumed was a, a white chocolate rabbit. I bit the head off and discovered it was not white chocolate. It was soap. And I spit it out and I thought, oh man, that's not white chocolate. That was soap. And then I thought, what the hell was I doing? Like, even if it was white chocolate, I found it on a utility shelf in someone's basement. Why was I eating that? So that, that's the dumbest thing I ever ate. Well, I, I, am, a, I am a foodie of sorts. Um, although I guess I'm also a vernacular foodie of sorts because I don't have to have all the gourmet stuff. Sometimes it's nice to just get a good filling, tasty meal in whatever form it takes. Um, you know, I think because I haven't traveled for over a year and hardly gone out to eat at all, I'm having a lot of memories of food while I have traveled. So that is what's coming into my brain. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think I wish I were in New Orleans. Uh, because it's one of my favorite food cities. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of jambalaya. And I don't know if you all are, I'm assuming y'all have had some time in New Orleans and, and maybe you have a favorite jambalaya place. Um, mine is Coop's Place on Decatur in the French Quarter, which is a real kind of divey, funky hole in the wall, but it's also like a scene, like people go there, you know, it's known, right? It's, it's, it's not exactly out of the way. Um, when we had, um, so I'll, I asked them, do I need to explain what I asked them is to your listeners? Uh, I asked them the International Association for the Study of Popular Music. There, I just explained it. 
So when we had our IASPM conference in New Orleans a couple of years ago, uh, I wanted to eat at Coop's place and I went with a friend and we had to wait in line a while to get in, but we did get in and they seat you there at communal tables. So we're seated at a table with like six other people and two of the people don't want anything to do with us, but the other four are like pretty friendly and they're closer to our age. Uh, we didn't all like just start having a great conversation right away, but it was, it was friendly. The waiter was like kind of a jerk, but in a funny way, he was very ab abrupt and kind of aggressive. And like, he wouldn't let me order, um, my drink of choice. Um, because he said that it was too much of a cliche. So he forced me to get some drink that he thought I should have instead which I liked just fine. Um, I wanted a Sazerac and I would have rather had a Sazerac, but whatever. Um, I got my jambalaya. I was very happy, but it turned out like, you know, we're sitting in new Orleans and, um, the person who's sitting like two people away from me at my table is from where I'm from. I'd never met him before, but he's, he lives like in my town basically. And then the person next to him had lived in my town for like years and didn't anymore. But like, so there's like of six people sitting at this one table in new Orleans, all of us had Western mass connections. One of them four three of us, no, four of us actually still lived in Western mass and just happened to be in new Orleans at the same time. And, um, and this guy like worked with dinosaur junior, the band, uh, so we had music connection that we were talking through. And then at the end of the night, when we were all done eating our jambalaya or whatever it is we were eating and drinking our drinks that were foisted upon us by the waiter, um, this guy was like, Hey, I have like some weed. Do you want to have some weed? And I was like, um, I'm sure. Like, I don't really smoke much, but I mean, this is funny. Sure. Why not? So I, I got high. So did my friend. And then I felt really weird standing outside on the street corner afterwards. Um, but to me, that story is just emblematic of how food is about so much more than food, right? It's about bringing people together. It's about creating the basis for conversation. It's about finding things in common with people you never knew you had things in common with. And, and like, I ran into that guy after like a year or so after that experience, I ran into him at a show and it was like, Hey, you're that guy from new Orleans. Right. And I would have never known who he was if I hadn't seen him in new Orleans. And now I know who he is when I run into him here locally. Uh, so that to me is like, that's a food story. Well, when you, Ask me this question. I knew exactly what I was going to talk about. And that's a memory from when I was eight years old, I think. And that's when my father brought me to visit my great grandmother, who was still alive at the time. And she's from Alsace. She didn't speak French. She just spoke Alsatian. She also spoke a dialect from uh, the Pyrenees because that's where she spent the war. So she'd gone from a dialect in Alsace to the dialect of the Occitan, basically. And her kids thought that she'd eventually learn French, but she never did. So I couldn't really communicate with her. Um, not very well anyway. I hadn't started learning German back then, so it was really quite complicated. But she made the most amazing onion tart. 
And I just have a memory of that meal. Um, she also, she was a cook. She cooked all her life, as in cooked for her family. Um, and they had a lot of land, so they would bring in the food. And apparently the saying went in the village that uh, a lot of things went into the Keller family's house, but the only thing that came out was smoke. Um, so that's kind of the reputation that they had. And um, this onion tart was really something else. And I've since learned the recipe, of course, and my mother makes it. And often when my mother asks me what I want for, um, for, for my birthday or for a special occasion when I go and visit them, um, it used to be snails because we were in France, but now they don't live in France anymore. So I just say onion tart. Because the thing is that when you cook the onions properly in a pan for a long time, they just become so sweet and they melt in your mouth and nobody realizes that that's the taste they have. And just one last memory about this onion tart is once I had some musicians who were um, a Spanish musician and a Brazilian musician who came uh, home. I don't know why. We were on a busking tour and um, and my mum was going to make onion tart and she just set them outside because they asked, can we help? And she just lay in front of them a mountain of onions and told them, peel those and cut, chop them up. And they were just chopping, I don't know, 30 onions thinking, what the hell is going on in this household? Why are we chopping up so many onions? And eventually my mum made the tart and then they realised what it was that they were eating and they were blown away by it. So Onion tart is one of my favorite things to cook and also one of my most beautiful memories of eating. What a great memory that is. Thank you. My father uh, was a tremendous cook, uh, very, very skilled in the kitchen. Um, and I inherited none of that. My mother um, was a, a, a real whiz at things like uh, tuna noodle casserole, which is a staple of most of our childhoods. Um, and, but she also did not gift me with a, a real affinity for meal preparation. So I am not a whiz. Um, and I do want to share that, that for, for special occasions, a great example is Thanksgiving. I feel obligated to make a large meal, knowing that it will turn out very poorly and everyone who has to eat it is going to be upset. Um, I still do it annually. So I will share that this, this last year, um, knowing that I didn't want to, I also should offer, I'm a vegetarian. And so I, and, but nobody else that I live with is, they all like all the meats. So I attempt to make meats for them. And I have done things like stick my entire forearm up into a turkey to try to pull all that stuff out of the turkey. That is disgusting. But it did not hold a candle to what I did this last year. I decided no more turkeys. It's just too much. Um, I, that's, a, that's a lot of bird. And so I thought, well, I'll get a chicken, so, you know, a hen, something like the size of a football. And I found a recipe and I bought all the things for it. I was so excited. Um, one of the reasons I'm a terrible cook is that I don't really read the recipes carefully before I decide to make them. And that was the case here. So it turns out I, um, I selected a recipe in which not only did you have to purchase the hen, then you had to do something called spatchcocking it. So you're both nodding meaning you're familiar with this. Let me tell you my version of spatchcocking this chicken. First of all, um, it is terribly disgusting and, uh, and you need butchering tools at home to do this effectively. It involves breaking all of the bones in the bird's body by yourself and then flattening it out, kind of like you would imagine a bat 
that's been run over many, many times. Um, and so I, I had to try to do this to this poor dead chicken. And it went terribly and it tasted god awful um and so what did i do i put it on facebook like like any <laughs> i noticed so it didn't that, show up in your instagram feed however. Did, not, did not did not um that's my food story i try really hard i make us i make a, a give it the old college try i make every effort and i'm just dreadful but now at least i can say i have spatchcocked a chicken Ta-da! Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services. And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews. That's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Our production engineer is Gavin Stocker, and our VVMC administrative coordinator is Heather Belts. And thanks to both of them for being our guests this week. And also check out Heather's Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast. And special thanks, as always, to our podcast consultant, SeedPod Productions, at SeedPodSound.com. See you next time.